This episode is brought to you in part by Dr. Tony Evans, author of Kingdom Kindness. Learn how to become a countercultural force by reflecting God's kindness. Find this and other uplifting resources on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. Our bond with God has experienced a tragic severing, and that what we need more than anything is reconciliation with the highest point of reality. We need to be totally made new before God, reconnected, reestablished, and loved into loveliness. And I think that insight connects everybody in the congregation. Well, this is Kevin Miller. I'm sitting in today for Matt Woodley as your host on Monday Morning Preacher with Late Night Ballot Counts. I supplanted Matt as the host. And uh, in my first act as uh, sole host, I have invited a good friend of mine, Ethan Magnus, to help us learn as preachers, how do we keep grace fresh? That most wonderful and central of Christian doctrines, how do we make that the beating heart of our preaching yet in a fresh and invigorating way for our listeners. Uh, Ethan is the rector, meaning senior pastor, of a church appropriately called Grace Anglican Church, a church he founded 15 years ago in Grove City, Pennsylvania. Good morning, Ethan. Hi. You know, I'm so glad you've joined us today, uh, not to embarrass you, but it just is true that you are one of my favorite preachers to listen to, and I, I've probably listened to 25 or 30 of your messages over the last year. And here, here's some reasons why I appreciate what you do. And uh, I'm, I'm using this to also, not, not to embarrass you, but to uh, say to our listeners, go listen to uh, Ethan. Uh, you bring in rich theology, a literary sense. Uh, you have this street level awareness of both the beauty and the agony of human life. A dash of sarcasm, and for some reason, <laughs> frequent deprecations of Taco Bell. Yes. <laughs> That's what you're trying to do? <laughs> yes, of course, especially the latter bits, yes. Well, you know, the challenge for us, Ethan, as you and I are both weekly preaching, is that grace, which is so central and so common, can become common in the bad sense of flat or somehow denuded of its wonder and, and our need for it. Elizabeth O'Connor talked about how the cross may be mentioned, but our hearts do not stir. So how do we keep that from happening as preachers? Well, one of the things that I think we can do is to helpfully and slowly and with great repetition, assist our people in seeing that the purpose of Christian charisma and, homiletic, and homiletics is to constantly placard Christ and him crucified for our audiences. In other words, we cultivate an expectation that a sermon is not principally a moral harangue or some new plan for me to organize my life in a slightly more pleasing direction. But instead, the heart of the Christian enterprise of preaching is to proclaim somebody else besides me uh, and somebody else besides uh, you, right? And I think that that's one of the things I try uh, to teach our seminarians when they learn to preach um, is really I try to teach them how to do three things. And if I believe they do these three things, the message of the gracious gospel of Christ will, of course, never become stale. And the first is they have to exhume the biblical material of a given pericope or passage, yep. and they have to do that clearly and well. 
They also have to, by necessity, show how that biblical material necessitates and points to the gospel, which means uh, redemption from sin via Christ's death and resurrection. Uh, they have to be able to do that because the canon itself is Christocentric. I mean, Jesus had a Christocentric view of scripture. Luke 24, his resurrection appearance before the disciples, he did something strange with them. He taught them a hermeneutical method. He said that the way to understand the Old Testament is that the law, the writings, and the prophets all point to me, and not just me, but me crucified and risen. Right. And so Jesus had a very um, passion-oriented understanding of even the Old Testament. And so they have to deal with the theological guts of a Bible narrative. They have to get to the gospel in a profound way. And lastly, they have to existentially connect with the traumas and pathologies and regrets and the Rocky Horror Picture Show of the hearer. In other words, the theology of Holy Scripture and its gospel core have to dovetail and connect with day-to-day -day reality. Well, that first thing you mentioned about exhuming the biblical text appropriately and deeply is something we've talked about on some other episodes, but I'd love to talk further with you about that, the second one, about uh, grace, and then the third one, the existential reality that grace is needed for. You know, I, I once heard a, a sermon by a preacher in the Reformed tradition, uh, very committed to the doctrines of grace, and not to be critical, but about 23 minutes of the sermon was the fallen condition focus telling me I was not only wormy, I was the wormiest of worms. Clearly, yes. And then there was this sudden U-turn, and in the final minute, maybe minute and a half, I was supposed to suddenly forget what I had just heard for 23 minutes, and it completely absorbed the wonders of grace. I, I couldn't make the emotional U-turn. But when I listen to you, I don't I don't feel that. Are you are you conscious of doing something? different from that? And, and what, are you, what are you doing in trying to help connect grace to our existence? Yeah, one of the benefits of knowing your Anglican history, and I happen to be an Anglican for better or worse, is that our tradition up until the 1970s was always a sermonically and homiletically rich tradition that changed in the 70s due to a lot of complex liturgical reasons. But nevertheless, before that, that was our emphasis. We were a word-oriented tradition. And at the heart of that word-oriented tradition, or at least within the first generation of it, we had uh, Thomas Cranmer, the author of the Book of Common Prayer and the Articles of Religion, and others write homilies for clergy to preach. And they were all Christ-centered, deeply, profoundly Christ-centered, but from start to finish. And so you're right, if your plane is plummeting, and losing altitude for 20 minutes, there's not enough time in the last three minutes to pull up. You're already dead uh, <laughs> or you're already clinically depressed and need some sort of antidepressant you uh, go. just to help you get through church. Yeah. So if, if we really believe in the doctrines of grace, our sermons ought to have grace as the emphasis, not as some tag at the end of it to redeem an irredeemable sermon. I mean, because in order to really proclaim Christ and him crucified, even as you exhume the horrors of the human condition, you do so with the prior knowledge that it's all been dealt with squarely, definitively, and irreversibly by a Christ who expects more failure from you than you expect from yourself. So, yeah, I, I know in your recent All Saints sermon called Lamb DNA, um, you talked about the basin of blood and spent quite a bit of time there actually on the theological trajectory of blood sacrifice and, and its use and forgiveness in our Judeo-Christian history. And so I did feel that reassurance that, 
yes, there is one, there is a lamb upon the throne and it gave me hope. Now with that last point where you talk about the existential agony of life, do you assume people already know how bad off they are or is it part of your job to try to help them become aware of that? How do you view it? We are at times gifted observers of our own individual crises. So we're, we're not idiots. I mean, we, we know what we know. We, we've seen what we've seen. And we can deduce that we have two or three hangups that keep coming back time and time again and that hijack us and paralyze us. I think what we have trouble seeing or trouble becoming is a perceptive diagnostician. What's the reason behind the individual expressions of paralysis. And I think one of the jobs of a Christian minister is not simply to tell people that you have this problem and this problem, and here are some solutions that you could utilize to fix your individual problems. One of the fix to a happy home. Exactly. Yeah. I've tried from you. Yeah. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) If I ever preach that, you can have me fired. But no, I think one of the things that's hard is that the Christian minister has to be a diagnostician for everybody. So you have you can say to everybody, look, it's yes, it is your son who has the drug issue, and or yes, it's your daughter who's been into cutting, or it's your pornography addiction, or it's your your unsatisfied unsatisfying marriage, or whatever it is. And those things are all real and they are all they represent hysterias of, of love gone wrong. They represent a lack of bonding with, uh, with God. They are all sorts of effects of fallenness. But is there a baser condition that unites all of us? And that's what I'm interested in. So you follow the individual and given hangups of a human being back to the core issue, which unites all of us, which is that our bond with God has experienced a tragic severing and that what we need more than anything is reconciliation with the highest point of reality. We need to be totally made new before God, reconnected, reestablished, and loved into loveliness. And I think that insight connects everybody in the congregation, meaning that everybody in the congregation needs the same thing because they all have deep down the same crisis. Yeah. In your sermons, I've heard you just be like spot on with references to addiction, family dysfunction, the inner critic, the the complexity of people's real lives. Your your thing about a, a covenant fit for Burnus was just <laughs> fantastic, and, and you've been honest about those things being a part of your own story. And yet, I've never really felt dragged through the mud or focused on you, Ethan. I have focus rather uh, more on God because of your use of those things. But how do you decide what you're going to share and what you're not going to share? For me, there's always been a tension uh, that we read about in Paul's writings, uh, where he says that we proclaim not ourselves, but Christ and ourselves as your servants. So we're, we're not there trying to show ourselves too brazenly. But at the same time, he says, we shared not only the gospel with you, but our very lives. And so there is some sort of tension in there, and I'm not sure I've always mastered the craft very well. But one of the things that I like to ask myself before I share something, and I stole this from another minister, is am I preaching from my scar tissue or from my open wounds? 
And I think it's a very dangerous thing to preach from unhealed aspects of myself because you tend to be, uh, or I would tend to be more expressive and even um, exhibitionistic regarding my own pains than I ought to be. And yeah. that's not always helpful for a congregation. Very rarely is that helpful. Instead, it's far better to speak from the calloused place or speak from the place of healed scar tissue, which still evidences pain, but which doesn't react the same way when it's touched. And so I look for the places that have been healed up by risen hands and uh, try to speak from those places with humility, but also with an invitation. I think the invitation when a minister is more open with their own uh, personal vexations and traumas and uh, brokenness is such an overused word, but let's just go with it. Um, One of the invitations implicit in that is if the minister can do this, if the minister can both have terrible things happen to them and still experience the grace of God in a healing way, then maybe as a hearer, maybe it's okay for me to express what I have to express and I won't die if I do it. And number two, maybe there's enough love in heaven to care for me. And maybe, maybe God doesn't think I'm disgusting because I have real problems and maybe there's enough grace in God to restore me a little bit. So I think, I think the benefit of doing it in a healthy way is that it implicitly offers a word of uh, hope to people that are listening on a Sunday. Let's talk a little bit about listener response, invitation, application, whatever that hoped for kind of turn in the listener's heart that you're conscious of as a preacher. I always come away from listening to you feeling what you were just describing. Maybe there's enough love in heaven for me, which is wonderful. And it's one reason I keep listening uh, to you. But in some, some preachers I know when, when they think I want to preach grace, it means uh, I really want to invite people to accept Christ yeah. for that first time. And you seem to have a, 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 like a, maybe a different way of looking at it. Tell us about that. Yeah, I think one of the sad as well as disastrous effects of revivalism, which is largely an American phenomenon, and to a lesser extent, pietism, is that, and you certainly see this within some of the spiritual disciplines authors of the previous two decades, is, uh, and the problem goes something like this, that the gospel or grace or uh, redeeming love is for non-Christians until a person becomes a Christian. And then the homiletical mode changes in which we speak endlessly about discipleship, uh, which is somewhat ill-defined, but it has a sort of a Buddhist quality and is almost entirely focused upon personal asceticism. And so grace becomes sort of a door that you enter. You you use it to enter the Christian church, but after that, it becomes almost semi-Pelagian and maybe not almost and in which we seek to align ourselves with heaven through all sorts of self-cajoling methods that hopefully over the long run will create an ethical evolution within us. I think that's disastrous. Uh, I think it's unbiblical. Uh, I think it's nearly abusive. It's, It's not biblical because St. Paul... Well, he, well, of course he has things to say about practical moral development within people. He always grounds them in the gospel as if the people didn't know the gospel. Now they'd heard it, but Paul also believed that human beings, because of our sinful nature, 
were always not not only wickedly debaucherous, but that we were also trying to justify ourselves by our own labors and by our own ideology and by our own gender identification and by whatever else we want to conjure up to justify ourselves. And so everybody needed a constant regrounding in the gospel. That's why his epistles, if you want to trace them out using Luther's terminology of law and gospel, the, the, the basic epistle outline is law, gospel, law, gospel, meaning Paul exhumes the human condition, applies the gospel to it. Then he shows us how to live in light of the gospel. And then he always ends with the gospel, but the emphasis is always the gospel. And he, that's why he says the gospel in first Corinthians 15, the only place where he defines the word, by the way, he says that the gospel is that Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose again. And that this is of first importance, not initial importance, but first importance. It has primary importance. In other words, the canon has weight and the weight is toward the gospel. And this is what Jesus himself taught in Luke 24. And so I think that for me, one of the ways that I try to view homiletics and especially application within homiletics is the principal application I need to make every week is to somehow apply an aspect of Christ's grace to the hearers. In other words, the key application is not to have a hearer change their behavior in some way, though I hope they do. And I hope that occurs, but that occurs as a result of the primary application, which is the application of Christ and him crucified for the paralyzed person, for the wounded person, for the sinful person, uh, for the recalcitrant person. Yeah. And that's the, that is the, the cajoling means of heaven. And, uh, and so, uh, yeah, I, and, and also just another word about application is that salvation in the Bible is a very elastic concept or elastic word. It can mean anything from election to glorification to adoption, justification, sanctification, all the big theological terms. In other words, we need a whole lot of rescuing in a whole lot of different ways. And so preaching grace doesn't mean that you're always and only preaching the doctrine of justification, how people are declared innocent before the throne, though that's critically important. It also involves other aspects of soteriology as well, because we need a whole lot of grace for a whole lot of different paralyses and sins and difficulties. So that's, that's what I would say. I, I'm not sure if that's... Well, no, that helps me a lot, actually, to think of, of grace as encompassing much more than initial movements toward justification and, and to the whole broad sweep of God's plan from now until I'm glorified with him. That's, yep. there's a, that's a whole lot of territory to work on. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk, let's talk about you personally as the preacher and how does grace stay fresh for you? Well, uh, for me, it's not dissimilar to hearing uh, words of absolving love from my wife. I mean, I need to know from her every day that I'm securely loved because I am given not to believe that. And how could we believe otherwise? I mean, we live within a world that is red in tooth and claw. It's vengeful. It's spiteful. It's resentful. It's, it's up and down. It's emotionally schizophrenic. And the only way it seems that people love us is if we do things for them or if we remain stable or if we whatever. And to, to have this counterintuitive, not just counterintuitive, I mean, it goes, I mean, it's beyond that. This message that uh, says, essentially, I uh, know everything about you. I know things about you that you don't know about you. And even though it's mysterious, I want you to know I've taken care of all of it. And it's not because you'll ever help me or fix anything for me. It's because I love you and you don't 
you can't fully understand that now, but the love will always meet you in your lowest place and it will do so without wincing uh, and without rejection. And that is something that I disbelieve by nature. I don't believe that because everything in my experience tells me another story. And so that's why the preacher needs to time and time again, bring people back to the bloodstained banner because we won't believe it unless it's proclaimed time and time again. And even then it's hard to believe it. There was a great line by Brennan Manning, by the way, uh, who was asked about his uh, statement that he would often make in regards to the justifying love of God, where Brennan Manning used to say that God loves you as you are and not as you should be because none of us are as we should be. Somebody said, well, wait a minute, do you actually believe that? And he said, no, but I really want to. And I love that. I love that. <laughs> so in a way you're, you're preaching uh, maybe first to yourself each week. Is that part of what? Yeah, you- especially in the beginning, right? In the beginning, uh, mm-hmm. I, I think that was more true. But as, as I've hopefully grown as a preacher, I realize that the evidences of the sinful condition or the evidences of, of personal need are different from person to person. In other words, we all have the same core crisis, but the manifestations of it are not the same for everybody. Now, I'm an angsty, anxious person. It's taken me a long time in life, and I've just turned 40, to realize that not everybody is angsty and anxious all the time. Now, I don't know what that's like. I mean, I wish I could be them. I wish I could take that pill. I wish I could have that diet, you know, <laughs> and fix that um, aspect of me. So, in other words, where a, a grace lands in my life, uh, at least how it expresses itself uh, to my trouble and emotional core, is to say that you don't actually have to measure up because you are loved in your fear. For me, that's everything. You're loved in your fear. You're acquitted in your fear. Uh, you're known and heaven doesn't hate you is the most beautiful thing in the world to me. For other people, the message of grace lands to them in terms of adoption. You know, they felt totally isolated their whole lives. They can't really connect with people that, or they've had, they had terrible parents or, or they, uh, uh, they have real trouble trusting people, but the, the notion of a bonding with God, a God who knows them and loves them and says, I want you. I mean, I, they might not, but I do. And I'll, I'll keep you. You don't ever have to worry about losing me. So in other words, I think my preaching has grown in that way because I realize not everybody's an anxious mess. I mean, that's good. One less thing to, you know, to assume about human nature is that not everybody is just you, you know, in, in different forms and different replications. Ethan, uh, thank you so much. Keep preaching those, those artesian, you know, sources of grace. This preacher's heart for sure needs it. And uh, thank you for joining us today on Monday Morning Preacher. Friends, this is Kevin Miller sitting in for Matt Woodley. Just a reminder that Monday Morning Preacher comes to you from preachingtoday.com. Tons of great resources over there. Check them out if you haven't already. And also let us know what topics you'd like us to talk about. Just email MMP for Monday Morning Preacher at preachingtoday.com. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.